Welcome to Overhead Space, where business leaders learn about the new dynamics of our changing world so they can grow their companies within it. My name is Jane Cavalier, longtime business and brand strategist, and I'm your host as we speak with some incredible people from business, academia, philanthropy, entertainment, government, technology, and more. You'll hear extraordinary insights and real-world experiences that will broaden your mind, inspire new thinking, and hopefully help you connect the dots in new ways. This is a special interview with ex-Navy SEAL Commander Sam Havelock. Sam provides rare insight into the world of special operations and how elite warriors are able to perform in the face of life-threatening challenges, ambiguity, and complexity. Sam shares personal experiences and discusses the critical role that trust plays in companies today. Sam Havelock is a remarkable entrepreneur, strategic advisor, and ex-Navy SEAL commander who served our country for an astonishing 22 years. Sam, on behalf of everyone, thank you for your service. Sam has encountered challenges, particularly leadership challenges, that few have seen and many cannot imagine. I've worked with Sam on various projects. I've always valued his unique perspective, clear-sighted thinking, and profound, and I mean profound, problem-solving skills. No one thinks like Sam does. Sam started in the Marine Corps, and after five years, he transferred to the Navy with the intention to go to basic underwater demolition SEAL training in Coronado, California. By the time he left the Navy in 2012, He had served almost 17 years in the Naval Special Warfare community. That's the SEAL teams, people. I know you'll enjoy listening in to what Sam has to say, especially about how companies can gain a competitive advantage by building a culture of trust. I am delighted to have Sam here with us today. Sam, welcome to Overhead Space. Uh, Thank you. It's been a great relationship uh, over the past several years working on some of the different projects that we've worked on together, so I'm, I'm honored to appear on your podcast. Terrific. Now, Sam, just to get us started, tell us a little bit about your time in the service. You know, what divisions you were in, what positions you held, just so we understand a little bit about what you've done. Sure. Well, I originally started out uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, and then about five years into my active duty Marine Corps career, I wound up reading a book that fascinated me with the with the SEAL teams. Uh, and to make a long story short, I wound up doing what was called an inter-service transfer, but going from from the department from the the Marine Corps to the uh, to the Navy uh, with an intention to go to basic underwater demolition uh, SEAL training in uh, Coronado, California. How long were you in the SEALs for? Uh, by the time I left in 2012, it was about uh, almost 17 years in the in the SEALs or naval. It's formally called Naval Special Warfare Community. That's the SEAL teams. Uh, so you know, all in, you know, about 16 and a half, 17 years in the teams, and then you know, five years before that uh, in the Marine Corps. So altogether, you know, about 21, 22 years. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, and when you look back on that time, how do you do? You look back on it fondly. I do. I think it was, uh, in in many ways, uh, probably the the highlight of my life. Uh, I think it oftentimes is difficult to um, reconcile that uh, time spent in the service of of a nation and with people you deeply care about and that care deeply about you, 
uh, is probably the highlight of your of your life. And so it, I look back fondly on that that time, and I I don't frankly know exactly uh, what what in the future could ever get better than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a that's an incredible endorsement. Now, as a SEAL commander, give us a sense of how many people were typically under your command, what kind of skills they had, what kind of missions you you did. Basically, when you start out in the SEAL teams, your level of responsibility would be, with regards to others, um, somewhat minor, and then it grows in, in complexity and volume as time marches on. So let's say really my first jobs in the SEAL teams as a as a young officer, an assistant officer in charge of a platoon, um, I was probably directly in charge of, of eight person person's SEALs in my squad, and then secondarily in charge of the rest of the platoon if something should happen to the platoon commander, which in that case and in those days was about 16 people. And that's your first job as, a, as an officer in the in the SEAL teams. And then toward, uh, you know, as, as time marches on, you, you increasingly take on more responsibility where you're leading SEAL task units, which can range uh, in size uh, depending on the number of, of direct SEALs that are working with you and the number of technical support personnel can, can range anywhere from 50 persons on up. And then finally, you know, my commanding officer tour uh, was in, in California of a team called Special Reconnaissance Team 1. And uh, at that stage of the game, it was about 600 people, both SEALs and uh, technical representatives that did everything from uh, a variety of different uh, sort of in intelligence-related roles in concert with SEALs. Wow. Now, it must have been both, in some ways, easy to, you know, manage SEALs and in some ways challenging. Can you talk about what, what are some of the things that made them um, an easier group, let's say, to manage, let's say, than an average company? or, or And then also, what would make it challenging? It's a very unique group of people. It is, and um, there's an and there's an interesting, a lot of people's opinions about the special operations community are formed by their sensibilities that have been generated through Hollywood uh, in terms of what makes special operations people tick. And uh, usually, uh, you think, well, these people are bigger, stronger, faster, uh, braver, so on and so forth. But I have a theory of special operations that sort of the unifying characteristic of most special operations personnel that I've run across, whether it's SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, so on and so forth, is that they have an actually they they actually have a much higher entrepreneurial uh, quotient to their personality. They're extremely comfortable with risk, and and where I'm going with this does help to explain the question you asked. Um, leading SEALs, leading special operations personnel is akin to trying to lead thoroughbreds in that they're extremely high functioning, extremely smart, m most often smarter than, <laughs> than you. Um, and have got, they've got an exceptional amount of creativity. Uh, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. On the good side, and what America needs out of its special operations forces 
is the capability to deploy people into vague, ambiguous, and risk-filled situations with very unclear guidance, trusting that these people will make the decisions required to achieve success, even though we haven't necessarily defined what success is to them. And it's a it's an interesting thing in that what you're looking for, what America, what the Department of Defense looks for out of their special operations forces is the ability to discern right from wrong, make very fast judgments, have an action bias, and to be really students of the human condition such that they can sense on on levels that uh, many people are not comfortable or shut down, so to speak, uh, very high emotional intelligence quotient. The ability to read a situation, uh, understand the context, understand danger, understand pressure, and still continue to make decisions, even though their life might be under threat, imminent threat, still decide, still take action, throw the enemy off balance, and continue the mission, that's what is remarkable about your average special operations troop, is this ability to be self-directed, on the spot, in the target, under threat. Uh, most people shut down in those situations. Not not your, not soft, though, but they keep barreling through it. Um, wow. The hard part of leading that is that uh, it's as if uh, I'm trying to draw an analogy, but the analogy might be you you really only have some amount of control. <laughs> <laughs> don't have total control over the situation because you've got uh, very smart people who are who are uh, extremely mission committed. Um, they're going to make decisions uh, right, wrong, or indifferent to achieve what they succeed, you know what they they view as success, um, and there'll be creativity. And and that's part of the territory, but you need them to be that creative. You need them to make decisions, and you just have to be strong in in terms of uh, of, of providing them the resources they need and the flexibility they require to thrive. Now, what happens if someone's using their creativity and going maybe in a direction that you, as a commander, feel puts the mission in jeopardy or is not the way you would go? How do you deal with not shutting them down but redirecting them? Yeah, so as ultimately by the time a a SEAL unit deploys overseas, the the let's call it the organism very much understands the strengths, weaknesses, limitations and possibilities of each of the people in it. And we all sort of self-adjust. What I mean by that is if I'm the SEAL unit commander and I know that, and I'm pulling this name right out of the hat, that uh, Jimmy, you know, is, is particularly um, put in, in this, that, or the other type of situation, might not make the best decisions. What I would wind up doing is ensuring that he had responsibilities that were more in line with where he would thrive and and not create uh, a situation that would would be hard to uh, to handle. Uh, so you you kind of get a you, you you're almost like a coach and you really understand uh, how the players 
like to play ball mm. and basically adjust the way that you coach in a way that keeps everybody optimized and minimizes uh, the possibility of of really anything, you know, that you prefer not to have happen. Interesting. But, so but, tell us, give us an example. Share, share a story that helps illustrate so we could peer into an you know, example of how this might work. Um, yeah, so this was a, this was actually a great story. This, this event happened prior to, prior to uh, what people know that people have seen the movie Love Survivor and they're familiar with, with, uh, Red Wings, uh, which was, uh, an infamous, um, an infamous event in the Afghanistan war. So I was the, the unit commander there probably uh, a little bit prior to, to that unit coming in, the one that wound up um, with uh, on uh, on the the Red Wings mission. What had occurred, what usually happens when SEAL units come in and replace another unit is there's a really a week or two a week or two of turnover um, where the new new SEALs will turn over things with the older SEALs in terms of uh, lessons learned or Hey, this is the helicopter squadron. Let's go train with them. This is the uh, this is how you do an ammo draw at the uh, ammo depot, so on and so forth. So there was this one particular day where uh, I was at the base camp, and the new guys that were assigned to us uh, had been put on a mission to go and train with the new helicopter squadron that had also uh, turned up uh, in the in uh, Bagram Airfield uh, in, in Afghanistan. And then I wound up getting a, a call over the uh, over sort of the communications network, uh, which was my next hire commander, that said, "Hey Sam, I need to talk to you really quick. Run down to the to the uh, command tent, which is you know where it was a building actually, but um, uh, and, and get here as fast as you can." So I I came over there, and my commander basically relayed to me a situation in that there was a uh, an American uh, force that was uh, effectively pinned down uh, in a in a part of eastern Afghanistan. Uh, they had lost radio communications with this force. They they weren't sure of the exact location or disposition of the force. Um, and really, the only people in the air right now that can get to that American force quickly to try to break the cycle of the enemy's assault was our new SEALs. They had never been in combat. There was about six or eight of them on a helicopter uh, that was that were doing training with the helicopter squadron, and they were going to be uh, sort of the best hope for this American unit that was pinned down. And he's and my commander said, Sam, should how comfortable are you that we should send them? And I told him, completely comfortable. And he said, "Well, then that's 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 what we're going to do because that's that's the only hope." So basically, these new guys that had never seen combat before uh, wound up going to the area. They had no guidance. They didn't. We didn't know exactly where the American unit was. But they proceeded to use their own judgment. They did have a, a you know a couple of uh, more senior guys, but that had just not had any combat experience. Um, 
they went to the area, picked the highest terrain feature they could get on, and then basically put the pieces together, found the enemy, wound up uh, essentially liquidating a number of Taliban forces uh, that had, had sprung the ambush on the American unit. And luckily enough, uh, the American unit didn't suffer anything other than some minor injuries and, and everybody, all American forces left, you know, my SEALs and, and this other uh, group of uh, Americans that had been patrolling through that area. Um, what was, I suppose, remarkable was the ability for me to trust that the system had done what it needed to do to deploy those those guys into that situation and everything would come out okay. Um, and, and it did. And their training prevailed. The type of people and the quality of the character, everything that describes how and why America builds SEALs or Green Berets or Rangers comes to fruition when you send somebody into a situation where they have no guidance, very limited information, it's extremely risk-filled, and they're going to have to make all the decisions on their own. And that was a shining example of, of what's possible. Sadly, many of them would perish in Red Wings only uh, a number of weeks after that, but essentially doing the same thing, flying in a Chinook helicopter into the heat of battle in an ambiguous situation to go rescue a brother. Wow, it's a fantastic story. Wow. Well, when when people are in those kind of situations, and you have obviously a very unique type of people, very specialized training, I'm curious to know what is their greatest challenge? Like, what was it? What was the greatest challenge in the minds of those guys in that helicopter on that day, or, or in general? Obviously, they have a lot of training, and they they're up for the challenge of the mission. But what is the part where you think that you know? they might struggle or where, you know, what they have to overcome and deal with on a personal level when in the heat of the moment. Sure. Uh, it's being scared and pretending you're not. It's simple as that. It's being scared, but having to do your level best to pretend you're not and to keep your act together. <laughs> because yeah. it's a case where you're not scared going into these situations. I mean, you're a human. It's not that we are showed up at Bud's in Coronado and they, you know, deprogrammed out fear. <laughs> That's not It's just you learn how to continue to, to deal with yourself and to do your level best to stay constituted under conditions of extreme pressure and threat and ambiguity. And dealing with yourself is the hardest thing. Are there any particular techniques? I mean, what do people do to put, bring their fear into submission or to control it or so they're not overwhelmed by it? What, what do they do? They do extreme compartmentalization. And in my, my uh, I, sit, I don't pretend to know that I sit in the sort of cognitive domain of, of every other SEAL or special operator or soldier, but I think what we probably tend to do is resort to 
what is the very next step, step by step by step. I think that what happens in combat is your your focus draws in like a soda straw. Obviously, your your adrenaline's pumping. Uh, auditory things start to change in terms of your ability to to really comprehend uh, and process. Uh, it's just different, right? It's just suddenly your your sense of cognition is just very very different than uh, sort of in the normal course when you're doing you know whatever you're doing in any other context. So different meaning better or worse or what do you mean by different? It different. It's extremely, extremely uh, focused on on survival and processing. You know, what do I have to do next? What's the next thing I have to do to 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 ensure you know survival of the team, survival of myself. You know, you know, prevailing in the mission, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So I think what we tend to do is start to to really uh, focus in on uh, step by step by step. And then blocking out uh, in sort of a compartmentalization way uh, the immense danger you're facing, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Wow. What what prepared you to lead these elite warriors in these kinds of environment? What kind of training did you think was the most helpful for you? I mean, I think that. You know, I I, th- I don't know that it's. Ne- I think that the I think that the training systems that the government puts in place allows a certain type of person to get through the system. In that, there are characteristics about my personality or about my upbringing um, that lend themselves you an ability that's stronger than others to compartmentalize or to deal with suffering. Um, it, it, it's almost remarkable in that if you start to ask and get into the background of, of uh, many of the people I've served with, oftentimes we share similar backgrounds uh, where you know maybe we had certain uh, let's call them attributes of our of our childhood or of our upbringing that were were difficult, um, and that informs an ability to be able to compartmentalize or to to put um, basically to put any kind of physical or pain or suffering off, you know off to the left or off to the right and continue driving towards whatever your objectives are. Um, but I, but clearly the training itself, you know, it prepares you. It the training absolutely prepares you to continue making decisions and the right decisions generally with increasing levels of stress, um, because there's, you know, at a very tactical level. You know, how do you keep a firearm operating when you've just had a major jam and you're in a firefight? Well, that's rote training. They're, you know, they teach you step by step by step what you need to do. And so that's that's sort of a tactical, specific example. But then uh, you know there's broader examples in terms of just how to how to process, how to make critical decisions under conditions of stress. Uh, it's like a muscle; you have to exercise it, um, and that 
you know, they do that again and again and again. You 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 do get stronger making decisions uh, during tough times when you've been stressed that way. Right. So all that preparation in terms of, I guess, learning not to have your cognitive abilities and your you know functional abilities impaired by the stress. You know, compartmentalizing and then falling back on training that must be almost you know just instantaneous, intuitive. Right. Correct. Exactly. Fantastic. Now, I know that you operate a, rec- a recruiting company where you place, you know, ex-special operatives into positions within companies. And I'm really curious to know, you know, why these kind of people, I mean, obviously they've been in all these, you know, out in the world and these really incredible missions. Why are they valuable and so unique and valuable in a company? What, do they, what can they bring that other people don't bring? Sure. Well, the, uh, one uh, minor nuance is we we uh, we don't focus as much on necessarily placing former special operations personnel, although we obviously do that. Um, but the the nexus between our talent agency and the special operations community is that we uh, much of our recruiting operation is informed by some of the techniques and procedures we learned in special operations with regards to emotional intelligence, questioning, um, finding people, so on and so forth. If you look at many of the skills that you use in special operations, they're directly relatable toward finding high-value talent in the world for a corporation. But I can answer your question anyway with regards to why a corporation would be, would or could or should be interested in special operations uh, veterans. Oftentimes, it's this action bias that really can be a game changer for a division or a company, so on and so forth. Your your average special operator is not going to be comfortable sitting around um, and not creating value, right? They they get fueled by the opportunity to shine and the opportunity to serve and the opportunity to do well, they're extraordinarily mission-driven and extraordinarily self-driven. And the funny thing about self-driven people is it tends to rub off. So by the introduction of a of a person with that sort of action bias and energy, that energy winds up being consumed by other people in a department or a division, and then sooner, uh, you know, sooner or later, you, you you wind up reformatting, you know, cultures with the type of people that are extremely driven, because it's cultures like anything else. People are influenced by one another. So the opportunity to import a person who's high impact. Uh, into an organization is extraordinarily valuable. Wow. So thinking now, when you were talking about these environments and uncertain world and complexity and people needing to be able to make right or wrong decisions and use good judgment, I mean, a lot of CEOs today are, are facing some of the environments, certainly not, you know, life-threatening, combative in theater environments, but you know, a world in which everything is changing. It's it's unclear about what the problem is, nevertheless, what the answer is. And it's hard to give guidance. And, 
It is, you know, it can be high, high pressure for the people on the line as well as the CEO. Do you have any leadership insights uh, that you'd like to share? Any advice? Sure. I mean, I think that um, if you're the CEO or, you know, an organizational leader, um, I think a lot of times people sort of focus on what qualification attributes certain individuals bring to the table with regards to an educational background that they might have or a set of of experiences they might have or a pedigree, so to speak, because of places they've worked and so on and so forth. And they make these wrongful assumptions that just because somebody worked at, uh, you know, a, a blue chip company like, Microsoft or, you know, pick a, pick a great company, you know, that, that they're necessarily um, sort of high-value talent. But what you really have to do is you have to look much deeper at the, at the individual with regards to their bias in terms of integrity, ethical code, in terms of to what extent are they going to do the right thing no matter what, no matter what, no matter who's looking. Because the rest of the stuff you can train people to do. What you, what you really want is, is a, a five percenter, you know, five or a ten percenter, the type of high impact people that are driven to succeed that are going to make the decisions you would think that a, reasonably astute person would make in ambiguous situations because that's always going to be even nowadays in an information filled world the the leaders is much more it's much closer nowadays to the leadership scenario i described toward the beginning of our podcast with reference to uh sort of driving a car that's out of control already this <laughs> <laughs> high highly talented people doing great things um, because the way information moves and the speed and velocity of of how information becomes reformatted and changes the operational picture, as leaders nowadays, we, we don't have access to the information that's as high quality or is as uh, sort of well-defined as what your people on the front lines have. So if you, if you take that as a given or take that as a truth, it becomes obvious that what you really need to recruit for and look for is the type of people with the ethics and moral fiber and and cultural compatibility of running a high trust organization right that's that's the biggest thing is are these people do they cultivate trust in in everything that they do and who they are. And if you can, when you can screen for that, we can screen for that because it takes A players to recruit A players and it takes trustworthy people to be able to to spot other trustworthy people. Uh, but that, I think, is the most important, especially nowadays in a, in a post, I, you know, I don't know, we could say post-COVID world, but, you know, our world is turned upside down. And now institutions that we thought we could trust, nobody seems to trust anything. We don't trust the media. Most mm -hmm. of us trust the government at this point. 
So now more than ever, it is going to be paramount to ensure that the people in your organization are high trust people. Wow. That's a really interesting idea. I mean, I haven't really heard uh, leadership conversations talking about the idea. I mean, you hear about creating a high-performance organization, but I like the way you reframe the conversation to what we really need to create are high-trust organizations because that's what's going to basically deliver performance in this new kind of environment. Because they'll have an extreme, they'll have an extreme advantage. Like so, the and what I mean by that is, a high trust organization can move out at a speed that a low trust organization, low trust culture, just can't keep up with. Right? There's just no way to compete. If if people in a high trust organization are making decisions on the spot because they're supported by their leadership, and and their staff is has this culture of trust, they're just going to move much faster than their competitors. I mean, it's, that has to be obvious. And so what you really do, if you can if you can curate that type of culture in that environment by picking the right feedstock to begin with, then that, that's how you arrive there. Um, so the, the the root source of being able to create a high trust organization sounds like it starts with the right talent. Well, that's that's exactly it. And if I were to show you the, um, there's basically a, a number of tenets of the special operations community. Tenet number one, rule number one of the of the culture is that people are more important than hardware. Um, and what we mean by that, it doesn't. We can give, we can build, we can invent the most eye-watering, magical operational technology in the world, but it does not and never will give you the extreme battlefield advantage you need if you don't have the type of human being you want behind that technology. Absolutely. So those tenants that you speak of there, so you have the talent in combination with those tenants, and that those are really sort of the two forces that come together to create a high trust culture. Right. If you were if you were to examine the special operations community and, and think of it as an operating system, the operating system begins, you know, with the human being. Everything we do with regards to building that community starts with an extreme focus and emphasis on the humans coming into it to begin with. And in a technology-filled world, we keep on making these assumptions that, hey, software is eating the world, everything's going to be fixed by AI and, and machine learning and robots and this and that and the other thing. But, you know, special operations community, we hold these truths to be self-evident that it's all nonsense. It all starts with humans. Mm. I like that. Well, I would think in a world with AI and all this technology, too, I mean, that's also like, as you said, a car traveling at a high speed out of control. <laughs> yeah, that's that's been, you know, Elon Musk slash, you know, a lot of people are, have that question, you know, right now, to to what extent are we building a, you know, a technoscape that is going to be beyond the ability for humans to, to control it? But that's 
probably the subject of a different podcast. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but the idea of, at least in your company, and you're deploying a lot of technology, is not to really put the human being in the back seat, but put him in the front seat, put him in the driver's seat. Exactly. Yep. Right. And, and, and to, to still realize that, that is your most important asset at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yep. One final question on this trust uh, organization. Recruiting people, he said, that have strong moral, have a strong character, moral compass or code, how easy is, is it to find these people? I, it's, not, it's not that difficult to make those judgments just because there's different techniques that we use in, in the special operations community. Um, there's terms called uh, uh, there's just various techniques that are born of, of really the intelligence community with regards to making determinations about uh, the veracity of things or, or the truthfulness of people and the um, there's just a variety of let's capabilities that you, that the government has invested a lot of money uh, into equipping you with. Because if you think about it, a lot of times special operations forces have to deploy into very austere environments that are within a culture that they obviously never grew up in. And they have to make very rapid decisions about uh, who they can work with, who they should network with, who is a friend, who is a foe. Uh, to make sense of the operational picture and the, and the culture and community where they're deploying to create infrastructure uh, as it pertains to becoming trusted, uh, establish relationships, you know, in a, let's say an Afghan village. So you've got to have some capabilities to be able to detect um, who you're dealing with. And so we just leverage many of those basic skills in the context of what we do to help corporations that we serve pick the right people. You know, when you're talking about the capabilities of these elite warriors, and as you said, you know, Hollywood has us thinking of them as look big and strong and tough, and it seems that the, the capabilities that, that, that they have that's really advantageous is, is the EQ, is their, their ability, as you said, to have a different seems like level of sensibilities whether it's more extreme intuition or instinct that other people have shut down but it seems that with these warriors these if you will you know superpowers have been uh focused on can you talk a little bit about that sure um if you think about it like and this goes back to my comment that uh you know, these different skills can be exercised, uh, whether they're leadership skills or whatever the case may be. Let me maybe direct your attention to the context of a, of a let's say, a 27-year-old man. If a 27-year-old man has spent, let's say, after college, you know, five years in industry, uh, doing different jobs, uh, how many times, and of course it depends on which industry, 
But how many times have they had to make life and death decisions for themselves or others in your average job context? Unless you're in law enforcement or fireman, that's different. But um, suppose you're a you're in enterprise software sales, right? And then suppose you've got a 27 year old ex Navy SEAL or soon to be separating Navy SEAL who spent, uh, let's say, since he's been 18 or 19, you know, six or seven years in the operational field teams, done a number of deployments, say four or five deployments overseas, has had to build rapport with tribal elders in the uh, eastern province of Afghanistan, has had to make life and death decisions for himself and others on every deployment and a number of times each time. You know, to what extent do you think that their decision-making fiber, who's got the stronger set of instincts? Who has got the bigger action bias? Who is got a much more tuned-up sense of people and how to deal with them? Because you can train the kid on the, the – you can train the 27-year-old feel – all about how to conduct the process of software enterprise sales. But it would be impossible to train the kid on the left about critical decision-making under conditions of pressure, stress, and ambiguity. It's just not possible. It's an experiential sort of learning. So to me, the value play is just so obvious. Corporate America doesn't really get it. Um, they don't because they don't understand that the the constitution of a critical framework within their cognitive ability to make hard decisions is just much stronger, right? It's a muscle that's been exercised again and again and again and again in a variety of circumstances. They've just had much more responsibility over the course of their young lives. And the implications for making wrong decisions were much more profound. So it's, I mean, it's just so obvious. It has to be. Well, that's fantastic. I think that gives a lot of people something to really think about. I mean, certainly in this new world that we're in, it, it very much to me mirrors the types of environment that these elite warriors were trained and operating in. And I, I don't believe that, it doesn't seem like, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, people graduate from college, they're, they're sitting at a desk job, they're doing whatever they're doing, but the, the level of their ability to, first of all, see and understand a complex problem before they even try to, to, to do something about it, uh, it doesn't seem like they have that ability. If they do, it's just nature-given because I'm not so sure we're training people to have those skills. Very right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Sam, look, go ahead. Go ahead. So I was, all I was going to say is that if, you know, they, I think that the United States Navy, Army, Air Force, Marines, um, and the you know, modern corporation, we all start with the same, same stock of people generationally. You know, they lived in the American culture, what have you. We start there, but then the experience becomes very different, you know, 
both from a training standpoint and investment standpoint, taking over 200 years of, of sort of government wisdom and, and how best to mature the human to be uh, capable and efficient at critical decision-making under conditions of pressure and ambiguity. And you have all of that institutional knowledge that goes into into training them. And then you've got the experiential piece where they're deployed again and again and again. Um, and so you just, you just can't replicate that. And, and a, a corporation could not afford to do that. The government is not optimized for efficiency. It's optimized for effectiveness. And so it's, there's just no comparison. But, you know, wow. for your listeners and readers, uh, we, we do publish the world's largest daily newsletter that uh, looks, through the, looks the world through the eyes of the special operations culture called SOFX. Uh, it isn't just for special operators, so if you, any of your readers or listeners are welcome to go to that website, www.sofx.com, and they can sign up for the newsletter. It's free. We don't rent, sell, or share the list to anybody. Um, again, we make uh, our money through recruiting. The uh, newsletter is just a benefit for uh, to help everybody see the world through the eyes of, of how we see things. That's great, Sam. And I'll, I'll make sure that information is also available uh, on the blog and various places so it can people can hyperlink and go right to your the website to sign up. But I want to thank you. That was just fantastic. And you really gave me a lot to think about. And I just want to just thank you, first of all, for your service and your leadership. And thank you for sharing all these uh, insights with us today. Jane, thank you very much. And, and the truth is I should have paid the government for it because it was uh I it was a such a remarkable such a remarkable life. And with such beautiful people, I can't imagine a life better spent. So thank you. You have been listening to Overhead Space, hosted by Jane Cavalier, CEO and President of Brightmark Consulting. To read more from Overhead Space or to listen to more podcasts visit www.brightmarkconsulting.com and check out the social media links below. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again for Overhead Space, business and branding insights to grow your company in the new world.